Welcome to the Sonic Acts Ya 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 Nay 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 podcast series on the occasion of Sonic Acts Academy 2020. My name is Arif, and for this episode, I went on Skype to talk to the New York-based musician, curator, and writer DeForest Brown Jr., who just released a record on Planet Mew December last year under his alter ego, Speaker Music. Just a week before Sonic Acts, I was sitting in our studio in Amsterdam while DeForest was sitting in his sunny bedroom in Brooklyn. We talked about the origins of techno, about platform capitalism, and about a hat he's wearing that says, Make Techno Black Again. In the background, you'll hear tracks by Speaker Music and other artists we talked about or that I felt were related. There is a track list in the description of this podcast. When we talked, DeForest was in the process of preparing for Sonic Acts, where he'll play with Bookworms and Via App, but he was also in the process of writing a book. I asked him what the book will be about. So it's called Assembling a Black Counterculture, and it's... um. So it started as a talk that I gave at Unsound Krakow in uh, October, and it sort of follows um, particularly Black experiences in the Amer- in the American uh, labor and housing market, and then tying that into the history of techno and like sort of building a sort of context for uh, the the American iteration of techno, if you will, or the the, the origins of techno. It's a, basically I spent a lot of my days going through discogs, like one release at a time in chronological order <laughs> and just like tracking the dates and then like doing broad interpretations of what was happening in Detroit and America like that very year. Yeah, it's an interesting batch of, of labor. That's actually, I guess, quite like a DJ set itself, right? Where you're like picking out records and picking out like what can lock into, like what track can like kind of lock into the next, like what track is like the most have you experienced being the most like I don't know uh, potent and effective track on the dance floor it's like I'm trying to find the most potent techno moments and like and also most potent moments in American history and like really build the story so what kind of tracks did you discover Uh, I've mostly been sitting with pretty much everything on Metroplex everything on Transmat everything on Planet E and then like Underground Resistance um, and then KMS the stuff I've been taking to the most was Kind of what I expected was a bunch of Mad Mike tracks. So anything from like 88 to like 92 has been, or no, like 95 has been like the most like kind of exciting stuff. And then it gets really exciting again at like 97. Um, but also a uh, Suburban Night has been someone that's been super interesting to me. I saw this Discogs, um, this comment on Discogs on one of Suburban Night's tracks where they were like, there would be no Birmingham techno sound or no like uh, British murder boys without like Suburban Night. And it's funny, like, reading these comments in Discogs, because you get so much personal context for the music that I don't think you would get otherwise. Like, I don't necessarily, like, take all of it seriously, but just to see what these tracks meant to certain people, and then kind of, like, tracking the date that, that the comment was placed in relation to, like, when the track came out is, like, always really interesting. But yeah, I found myself getting really attracted to mostly the... Um, like Mad Mike's take on like high tech soul and like taking Derek May's concept of like this soul infused technological music and like um yeah I I just kind of yeah found myself com- like constantly like thinking about Mad Mike being a member of a uh, Parliament Funkadelic and being like a Motown session musician and seeing more vividly like that connection through Mad Mike in techno so yeah that's what I've been finding really I was um 
looking at YouTube comments earlier, which is kind of a similar thing to these Discogs comments, right? And I was looking at um, the other people place, Let Me Be, which I'm sure you know. So good. <laughs> Wait, I'm trying to find this comment. Hang on a second. Oh yeah, here we go. Let the masses have their shitty club bangers. We know what's up. This is timeless. <laughs> it, it's actually funny that I see a lot of people call other people place in particular a timeless record or um, lifestyles of the uh, laptop cafe. From what I understand, what Stinson was thinking about was this kind of like very banal future in which we're all like pretty much doing what we're doing like right now. We're on these screens like I'm isolated in my like bedroom like and then there's kind of like the idea of being in a cafe and you like you suddenly lock eyes with someone like above your laptop screen and like that like the most intimate moment like possible in like an optimized like technological future that's like again boring enough for you to be in a coffee shop and there is something really timeless about that particular emotion that i mean it's just like a funny concept for a deep house track isn't it like even more than like intelligent dance music it's like literally in your head where you're like a like the laptop cafe as a club it's like, really funny but again like that's kind of what i've been finding as i like search through these like techno tracks is like how predictive they all were of like the current future we're living in. Yeah, there's a lot of references to like economics and stuff in techno that's like really subtle or maybe not so subtle if you like look at the track titles. Um, like was it Stingray and uh, Gerald Donnell have that record together in RSB11 where they're like going on about like mass market like consumption and like offshore banking and they're just like I learned so much about economics from techno just like looking into like what these titles mean in which my father is an economist so it's been a really weird kind of like way for me to like interface with him and like his profession is like just through looking up techno tracks. Hey, and you just put out a record on Planet Mew that's called Off Desire Longing. First track is with empathy and the other one is without excess. And I also sense kind of the same terminology there in a way, right? A lot of that record was kind of inspired by other people plays, but also other types of like, um, of like, yeah, this techno sound. And it is a, it's a record about economics very like subtly. Deleuze and Guattari wrote about like d desire production, right? Where you can, um, you desire to produce and you desire what you are producing, like you desire the product. And so there's this like cycle of longing for like satiation as you're like producing and trying to take stuff in. Um, and my approach with the two tracks is to, in like a streaming economy where all of music costs $9.99 per month, <laughs> I wanted to make a record where the entire side, like each side of the vinyl was filled completely with just like content. Um, just want just continuous sound and you're meant to take it in with empathy without excess. Also in relation to Stinson and like Mad Mike, I wanted to try like a studio jazz, but like also bedroom kind of approach where like pretty much the entire record was made in one night and then edited very subtly and sculpt it out over the course of a year. So it's, you get the entire breadth of this, like, one moment of labor where just, like, over, like, six hours, I, like, strung some shit together. Like, I think it was, like, from, like, 10 at night to, like, like six in the morning or some shit. Like, I just, I don't know what happened. I just, like, made this record one night. Um, and then, like, yeah, made little updates 
over that time and um yeah the hope is that over the course of the album you really like get lost in, and really hopefully care for the labor that i've like kind of put into the record like if you buy the record and you spend like the 30 dollars or however much it costs you like and you put the record on hopefully you like feel 50 minutes worth of like of life and there's some editions of it that come with a book that I wrote with my partner who did the cover and also my press photos, uh, Ting Ding. And the book is called Quarterly Reports and it's a year an analysis of the last year of the, um, of the last year of the second decade of the new millennium. Um, so it, the record came out in December, but it comes with a book that basically encapsulates the entire economics and uh, social cultural like context of the year leading up to this album coming out. And so we cover stuff like Frank Ocean's parties uh, or house and techno parties in New York. We cover WeWork and like that whole scam. We covered um, the Hong Kong um, protests and then just kind of dropped the album. And it's like we, we need to like treat all of these like economic and seasonal transactions with empathy without excess and like really maybe consider what we're taking in and what we're experiencing in real time and maybe take a step back. Um, and for that, like I did a album release party at this space called artist space um which is a known like new york art space that started in like 1973 um the genre no wave was started there with like uh, james chance and the contortions um yeah it's famous for like a lot of things in the art world in the downtown uh, scene and so a, a, an exhibition was like curated around the album where i literally played the album for like a good like four or five hour hours um while there were like couches set up and like red lighting and people could sit and read this book while I like kind of put them in a timeless space. In the description of, of the record, you reference Koto Eshun and the chronopolitical and kind of Afrofuturism. And as I was thinking about this interview, I had to think of this quote by Zadie Smith, actually from an NPR interview with uh, Terry Gross. <laughs> oh shit, cool. So she says, I would say we're in a process of radical, uh, a radical desire for time travel, which is something different. You know, there was a survey really fascinating to me done of Republican voters in this last election by the Times, and seven out of ten of them report wishing America could go back to how it was in the 1950s. This is a very interesting point for me, because that kind of historical nostalgia is only available to a certain kind of person. I can't go back to the 50s because life in the 50s for me is not pretty. Nor is it pretty in 1320 or 1460 or 1580 or 1820 or even 1960 in this country, very frankly. So that's what interests me, the historical nostalgia that is available or not available to others. And so I found this photo of you, right, wearing this hat, make techno black again. It points to so much, right, to this nostalgia that is available to some. And and not to others and yeah i was curious about that so my partner uh ting ding runs or co-runs a uh gender fluid sustainable clothing line with uh, a woman named luce uh fernandez who who's a painter and they in luce for whatever reason a few years ago just came up with this phrase and this meme and it like kind of got shared a bit widely around like the brooklyn scene and like on on the internet and eventually they decided to like make some hats to kind of um, as like a side project to go with the clothing line um, that they were doing. And there's all like so 20% of the proceeds for that hat 
um, go straight to a youth in-school educational program or arts program in Detroit called Living Arts. And so the hope is to, like, yeah, have this phrase that, like, kind of, like, juts you, and then when you buy one, some money goes right back to the origin, and then the rest of the money goes to, like, basically reproducing the hats and, and paying artists that they, um, that they book for various events for the clothing line. Um, and this happened maybe a year before I met them. And so I came in and, like, Ting one day, like, show me the hat. And it actually did strike me in a way where I was, like, um, where it really felt like... Like, obviously, there's the kind of, like, Trumpian... There's the memeing of the Trumpian meme of, like, Make America Great Again. But Make Techno Black Again is a strangely valid just as valid, you know, with uh, quotation marks, phrases, make America great again in the sense that, like, it is to be assumed that something has been taken from Black people and that there is something that Black Americans um, would need to propagate is in need of, like, reclaiming. And techno also... So I got into techno years before, like, in college from reading Alvin Toffler and reading about the Italian futurists. So the exact opposite of way of like everybody else. <laughs> um, and I was reading about Toffler's, Alvin Toffler's understanding of technocracy and um, his predictions and readings of, of Detroit and it's like collapsing economy. And yeah, I saw the word techno rebels and like technocracy and you know, click the link and then suddenly I'm like reading about this dance music and I was like, what is this? Like, why is this like what comes up? And it turns out one Atkins in high school had taken a class called Future Studies in which he was told to read uh, Alvin Toffler's Future Shock. And he took the word techno and like that's what he called his music. It was music against the technocracy, music that was like, that he he was a techno rebel against like the the sort of industrial uh, assembly line forces that like removed like financial resources for like his area, like it and the thing is, I don't think Juan was necessarily, like, um, trying to wage, like, a culture war. But he was, like, you know, thinking about it. And technocracy is something, to, to return to Zadie Smith, technocracy is exactly what she's referring to. That there's a sort of technical availability of history, resources, um, progress. There's a technical design of, like, what we consider to be American every everyday American life and everyday American futures that black people technically cannot like on a literal technical level cannot be a part of um whether it be through redlining and through like uh, through white Americans receiving pretty much all the the mortgage loans that allowed them to move to like nicer suburban areas or whether or not it was black people moving up from Jim Crow era south to Detroit to work on the assembly lines as blue collar workers because that's what education was available to them and like what skills were available to them left over from like slavery days and sharecropping days. It's either way there's like a a technical difference that keeps Americans always just a step shy of of fully integrating into what we consider to be American industrial realism. Or I guess as Mark Fisher would call it, like capitalist realism. Like um, black people don't experience that because we're yeah, the, the resources have been completely shifted and moved, and then like obviously black versus white is a um, is a capitalist classification, not a race one, but it is based on optics. 
And so anyway, I saw the hat make techno black again and like all of this like rushed into my head immediately. And I was like, you know what? I'm gonna wear this fucking hat. <laughs> and so I started wearing the hat and um, kind of became a representative for it. I made this mix for it based around these ideas. If you go through the track list of the mix, in chronological order, you'll actually see different ways of coping with industrialism. So it's less even about the music itself. Like the hope is that, yeah, you're just sitting there looking at the track list while the music's happening and it just like washes over you and feels like a machine of like experiences. Cause I mean, nothing I did in the mix involves like beat matching in the traditional way. There is no like, there's no bangers. It's literally just like, it's the, it's the soul and the funk I was talking about, just like pulsing music. And that's kind of where the book comes in. Um, I was asked by this art, this Brooklyn um, art uh, book publisher to, to write some stuff on techno. And this book, Assembling a Black Counterculture, kind of came to me over time and does kind of spur from the project of the book. So if the, if the hat is meant to kind of be a distress signal to other black people or even to Europeans to be like, hey, there's something, you know, there's something off here or there's some sort of reparations that needs to be paid to black people, then the book hopes to give a very formal, um, not just historical account of techno as a music, but also, as I was saying earlier, a sort of um, a technical redesign of all the types of futures that Sadie Smith was saying that we as black people can't return to. And yeah, so the phrase for me, make techno black again, really just means that make the technical design of America black again. Like give give it to us if we were slaves that were like, that built this thing. Like give the entire conception of American futures back to black people who it has been like ripped from over and over and over again. Yeah, because I mean, when I hear techno music, I don't hear dance music. Because in fact, when I was listening to techno, I used to be a truck driver. I would like deliver packages like all over the American Southeast, um, which James Denson from Drexia was also a truck driver, but he drove like 18 wheelers. Um, and I mean, techno is car music because Detroit was a city that like designed itself around the car and forced a technical divide between blacks and whites based on the affordability of a car and the ability to like traverse like like Henry Ford's, um, the Ford industry was not actually in Detroit proper. That was in Deerhorn, Michigan, which is a made up um, zip code outside of Detroit. Detroit was a metropolitan city that Ford would extract labor and capital from. And Ford was an incentive for Detroit to like basically make money. It did not, it completely collapsed. <laughs> and uh, Bellevue, where the Bellevue 3 are from, for if you count any folks, they are, um, that's a suburb where people would have to go into the city and do work and like, so it's an interesting like geographical, like capitalist funnel that you see there um, in Michigan. And I want people to recognize that techno, at least what black people call it, um, techno, <coughs> techno without the Berlin context and the like Netherlands context is completely 100% about geographical extractive capitalism on an industrial mass scale um and it's not necessarily about going to the club at 3am and taking a bunch of molly or ecstasy or whatever and like having like a religious experience it's really about gathering 
in warehouses illegally or gathering where you can to make the best of having no resources. I was reading your interview with uh, Bill Kooligas of Pan, and in it you also kind of mentioned the James Stinson of Drexia was a truck driver and his family didn't know he was a producer and then he would just go down to the basement and disappear. And So I was thinking about this and then my friend uh, Ivan recently sent me this link to a track by Hannah and I was kind of looking into that artist and it turned out that she just produced an album and she kind of live streamed the whole thing on Twitch, this Amazon-owned video streaming giant right and so she's like in her bedroom surrounded by analog gear and i was thinking like of course i mean of course she's producing that music but more than anything i felt like that gear became kind of a decor or something for yeah like a decor for the act of producing music and how that process becomes the actual product now because more than ever You know, the production of music is so like influenced and shaped by these platforms that you describe, but also by companies like Spotify, like looking into generating music, right? To like getting rid of the artist completely and just like distributing the product. And I feel like that's happening on the one side. And on the other hand, there's people like Hannah, yeah, maybe like selling that process and like these pointers to the coolness of analog. Well, that's the funny thing about the concept of like open source inside of a capitalist industrial capitalist system right <clears throat> so i mean with detroit techno all of the gear that they got was like bought in pawn shops it was bought off of these motown like producers and stuff that like chucked all their gear when the when the city collapsed and like they left town and so for one there's no gear fetishism in techno proper because like It was all cheap. I mean, you even think about Asset House, the 303 that Spanky and Pierre was using was broken. And so like the asset line wasn't even like a programmable thing in this gear. So for people, the fact that the 303 is this like heralded instrument to me is like, I don't get it. Cause I, cause again, it's the soul. It was like Spanky and Pierre making, actually I forgot who it was. Um, I think it was Mark Flash of Underground Resistance that said that, um, You know, you just touch some machines and make them do some funky things. And that's like what it is. Or even Herbie Hancock was like, how can the machine be wrong when I'm the one who plugged it in? And it's, and yeah, so when you talk about Hannah kind of like, yes, it's like nice that I guess like, yeah, she opened up her studio process. Um, but there's something so, um, how should I put it? there's a kind of assumed or there's an imagined community in that right there's an imagined community that like maybe people coming in that there's an imagined community that pretends as though there isn't a technical difference in a per like a technical difference in technology in general where she's like here technology is, is for everyone i mean ableton does it where they're like everyone can have ableton if you spend if you spend 500 in our software And it's like, mm, let me get $500 and figure that out. Um, and then I'll have the lowest quality version of the entire, like, yeah. And it's, uh, yeah, I mean, 
So particularly with Stinson and Gerald Donald, like I, I, I just would love the fact that these two nerds would like after work go down to their basement and would just come up with these like Dungeons and Dragons stories about like really serious mythological implications for like the black like unconscious because like the thing is like Stinson was reading Paul Gilroy's um, uh, Black Atlantic he was reading like not even Afrofuturist texts as much as he was reading like historical sociological breakdowns of like black people as capital and labor and the one thing that is not open source if you will or not like being advertised by these platforms is the actual uh, black experience inside of music that's the thing you can't like put on twitch and display i mean i guess that's what slavery was right it's like putting a body on display and showing what a black body can do you can also show that in sports like if you're a football player you know it's like so and so is a really good like quarterback and that's like it his skills are on display in the same way that hannah puts his gear in display but again with make techno black again what one would have to do is stop fetishizing the gear, stop showing off the gear, and actually just put a black person on stage. Which, my live show has actually, in a lot of ways, become completely about that, where I was playing the other night, and so I play on, like, a, uh, Ableton Push, Ableton, and, like, an iPad. <laughs> and I don't actually know how to use a lot of electronic gear, but I'm, like, I played music since I was a kid. Like, I played trumpet and tuba. I can read music, improv music, do all the... I studied it in college, did all the nine yards. So when I touch gear, I'm like actually playing it. And I felt like a dumbass the other night where I was like in the like 30 minutes into this hour long set and I was like playing the keyboard over here and like playing the kick drum over here. And I was like, oh no, like I look like fucking like, I don't know, like a weird one man band. <laughs> and it's funny that you, you mentioned this Hannah thing because I was like, fuck, man. Like, I actually just sat and thought about the fact that, like, you can't take me to, like, an Ableton, like... Like, you can't, like... Like, I was imagining myself on, like, facts, like, against the clock or whatever, and, like, they would say, make a track in five minutes, and I'm like, I'm sorry, I'm just gonna, like, move my fingers around a lot. <laughs> and it's funny, my partner loves that. Like, she loves the fact that, like, there was a particular show I played where my interface started glitching out and i figured out that if i like kind of like push a button on it in a rhythm i can kind of get it to jolt enough power back in to like keep it going for the rest of the set so it's this weird thing where i literally just had to like become the machine and just like rhythmically like switch between stereo and mono on the interface while like playing with one hand and she thought it was like so like evocative of like the whole high-tech soul ethos and was like was like really into it she's also my partner so she's like always into it but um no she'll tell me if it's bad but um but no, she always refers back to that show as the first time i've ever like stopped using the machine to like make the music Someone who also kind of really goes for that and that who you also work with is Stephen Warwick. You have this, well, this group, I guess, it's like a cataloging space and focus group called Elevator to Mezzanine. And I wanted to maybe talk about how that went, but I also wanted to ask you, like, what's the importance of like 
readability or accessibility in terms of what you want to give to an audience or what you how you want an audience to kind of engage? Well, first and foremost, Steve is like one of my heroes. I love him so much. He's like my one of my best friends. And I was obsessed with his music in college. Um, I heard... Um, uh, deviations. I heard Deviations, his like first pan release uh, in college on a road trip of all things, and broke out laughing because I was just like, this is so good. I was just like, why the fuck are you, like, what are these sounds? I was just like so into it. And he was actually one of the first people I met when I moved to New York. Like, I met him like maybe my second day here, and we just have been like best friends ever since. And so I got this fellowship at Issue Project Room, um, this art space in New York, which is why I was in uh, talking to Bill Kuligas. And um, one of the things about that, so uh, Bill was going to move to New York around that period, but for whatever reason kind of ended up not doing it. And that was part of our conversation was talking about the landscape of New York and like the level of possibility of like um, curating cultural events in, in New York. Um, at a time that was somewhat free of platform capitalism but was definitely being amplified by it um, and I wanted to with my fellowship kind of fill in that gap of like imagining what it would look like if Bill Kuligas was able to like put on events um, and actually Bill Kuligas did put on events in New York through Issue Project Room um, in the form of a Pan Panac Festival in 2013 and I actually moved up here for that which is how I met all of them um, like I literally dropped out of college uh, I had like that's a whole story but I like dropped out and just like moved to New York um, got some internships and was just like I'm gonna move to New York and meet these people and one of the goals of that was to yeah work with Steve Warwick and so as we became friends we started talking about the fact that like every top shop in New York every H&M had a DJ and so you would have the situation where like the same DJs that would be playing ghetto gothic would be soundtracking you shopping for fast fashion and and yeah steve found that to be just so funny um and <laughs> and so we were like and yeah we were just like elevator to mezzanine of course like because um at the h&m in times square there's a dj booth on a mezzanine level as you're going up a three-story um escalator and we were just like of course elevator to mezzanine and so that was a way for us to create an abstract space to put these ideas of a sort of simulated, propagated club culture that this like hedonistic thing that was being like, yeah, sold to the masses, it, like via earworms, like again, while you're like drinking your Starbucks and like trying on like, like some like Forever 21 clothes that you're going to throw away at the end of your trip. And this ethos actually led into me collaborating with my partner and uh, her clothing line Etcha and Make Techno Black Again that that was kind of the extension Etcha so my partner and Luce like lived in Berlin and clubbed in Berlin they Luce is from New York and clubbed in uh, New York and like works all like the bars the un at the Unter Party works at like nowadays and like all these like staple venues and the clothing line is meant to kind of be a countercultural uniform for the club scene, but also for like workers, like queer workers in the club scene. And then Make Techno Black again pays homage to the the origins of where this club scene comes from. And yeah, Elevator to Mezzanine was just kind of a 
it was the beginnings of me noticing actually I, I can say this yeah elevator to mezzanine was the beginnings of me noticing capitalism in the music industry because that just didn't exist in alabama like no one gave a shit enough to like sell me electronic music um which is like something that <clears throat> really freaked me out up here was that you have these magazines like when i worked at mix mag briefly i was a the east coast editor there for um in new york for two quarters of 2017 and the the people working there kept saying they wanted to be fader and i was just like you can't be fader like electronic music is only popular in new york and like la literally like there's nowhere else in this country that like people would give two shits about dance music and we have to remember that like white people in the 70s blew up a bunch of disco records at a baseball stadium which goes to show you to how much they care about dance music they, they blew up these records <laughs> what <laughs> yeah it's called a disco demolition a bunch of um white baseball fans um yeah I, I can't remember the exact year maybe it was 78 but they were just like disco's dead and actually that was the end of disco um they gathered up all the disco records they could and just like blew it up at the end of a, a, a chicago cubs game in chicago where house is from and it i mean it makes perfect sense to me that techno and house would get like outported to europe because americans didn't want it because they're racist but also because like americans don't like not being productive like they need to work um and they don't like like nighttime is for resting for work you don't and yeah and so elevator to mezzanine and then by proxy leading into etch and make techno black again is a sort of analysis that i've been doing across the last 10 years of like watching what americans do with dance music post edm because like suddenly in 2011 skrillex became like a household name and everyone's like oh dance music is coming to america and like ari opened up an office here dj mac opened up an office and like mix mag and they all came around like around like 20 ari came over here in like 2014 no 2015 mix mag came in 2017 dj mac in 2018 to new york and la and they literally were coming at the tail end of american edm falling completely apart but they had heard that dance music was popular over here and it like actually was not because again americans blew up a bunch of dance records they like literally like destroyed them because they hated it so much and yeah so elevator mezzanine etcha and make techno black again is me chronicling americans grappling with dance music entering um their everyday lives and as we can see now in 2020 it's pretty much gone it's like it's again isolated to new york and la these like small but large liberal politically liberal like economic bubbles like you said you were a curatorial fellow right at the issue project room in brooklyn and that's also where you worked with uh, steven and i wanted to ask you what does so speaking about the music kind of the music world right and what does the art world and maybe the institutions of the art world offer you in terms of freedom or in terms of the way you can work there that maybe the music industry doesn't honestly the art world is the exact opposite of the music world in the sense that there's more structure um which is why it's managed to maintain itself and the music industry is completely just like bottomed out over and over again and gotten siphoned from like from like a, the limitless economy of like uh of uh, music torrenting and then eventually streaming. With the art world, 
there's actual like each painting actually means something like you you have like fucking like so i'm going on this residency just after sonic x um from that's off like on this island uh called like Cap- captiva like off the coast of florida and it's from the painter uh robert rochenberg after he made it really big in the 70s he went and bought a fucking island and he's like four times four or five times a year i'm going to send a group of artists to live on this island for a month and you'll get paid money you'll get you'll be paid to live on this island and make work and that's the kind of stuff that the art world does to maintain its integrity um is they actually put their own money into resources for other artists to make more money and then on top of that rochenberg's name gets bigger because he has like all these investments and like all these people underneath them they, like there's an actual like sort of mentorship system and platform system that the music industry just refuse refuses to figure out isn't it also in a way kind of a bit more complicated because kind of the critical like approach in the arts and maybe the kind of discourse that we're doing right now is also used to kind of give body to products right i find where maybe it's more out in the open in, in the music industry um and that's also why we see it fail so much uh in the art world that's it's maybe more embedded and also more problematic i mean with the crisis also you could see like careers of artists go down right because suddenly like no one cared about investing their money in art anymore because they just wanted to save their companies yeah absolutely i mean the art world's really funny in that way right because like part of the way that it works is that it's so private i mean you think about the whitney museum and how five of their board of directors were directly linked to like weapons dealings and just and it's like what do you do with that it's but also the whitney the new whitney building in new york is along this um elevated park called the high line that was like a humanitarian project where they took like what was supposed to be a monorail system and turned it into a park that goes up uh 30 blocks so it goes from like 14th street up to like 34th street recently at the top of that um of this long railroad park a mall was built a equinox hotel was built shortly after the founder of equinox revealed that he was um throwing a a sort of party in support of uh president trump and also a venue was opened by alex poots who run who used to run the uh park armory and hansa rick Oberst called the the shed and it opened with like a performance from like arca and bjork bjork like premiered like an opera or some shit there and one of the yeah it's just like a shit ton of evil money and in fact they were able to fund all of that by um re by doing the thing that americans do they rezoned the zip code because like right outside of that like millionaires playground is a housing projects you know housing mostly black people um they the the developers of this area hudson yards applied for a grant for this housing department or this housing complex these uh, these project homes and got about two billion dollars for it and then cut them out of the deal and like cut them out of the uh the zip code lines and then use that to build these art museums so the thing is the art world's fucking evil but that's how it like it is like um but that's the deal with it it's um it just runs the way america runs whereas the music industry hasn't quite wormed its way into into both the economic culture but also the personal culture of uh everyday people and that's why we're selling all of it for 7.99 or 9.99 or whatever is because like no one actually cares about music whereas with art 
you can kind of gamble its economy. Um, well, I mean, it, it's about the physical distribution of it, right? Like, with art, there is a limited number of uh, things that can be sold. And then uh, there's that uh, Hito style book. Uh, what is it called? Um, uh, I can't can't believe I can't. Duty-free art. Yeah. Where you, you have people that stow art away in, like, these bunkers. Like, it's like offshore banking. You just, like, store the art away. And maybe there's nothing even in the bunker, but the bunker itself is worth the amount of money that all the art that's supposed to be in there is worth. Um, and obviously, I don't advocate for any of this in any way. But this economy is banking on the fact that... Wait, and it goes back to Benedict Anderson's, like, Imagine Communities. It's banking on the fact that from what, what Benedict Anderson says is that a, a, pro, a proper nation-state has to be formed around an art museum and that the art museum collects the physical, tangible, and, like, written culture of a, of a group of people and then the laws form around it, the roads form around this art museum and suddenly you get, like, a an industrial culture that is, like, cultivated around this, like, epicenter of culture itself. Whereas America... And I guess by proxy, the rest of the art world, which is based purely on like, you know, stealing artifacts during World War II, is um, yeah, it's kind of a weird mafia dealing. But I go to the art world mostly because there's at least the illusion of care for culture, um, but also uh, the flexibility of the music world. Like with art, like it, there there is a critic that will sit down and like kind of try to work with you and go like instead of going, oh, you're like your 303 doesn't sound quite right. It, like, it doesn't remind me of, like, Jamie Jones circa, like, 92. Um, in the art world, they actually know what the fuck they're talking about. <laughs> like, the art world, like, someone will actually call you out for being derivative, and you actually can't say shit about it, because, like, because they're, like, pulling from, like, facts. Not, like, some guy's, like, Discog's opinion. Like, incelly, like... Yeah, um... So, I don't know. I mean, that's why we're doing the podcast right now, right? Is that, like, I've managed to slide over to the music world long enough to like try to propagate these ideas but also stay in the art world long enough to build a sense of credibility and a sense of like um cultural i don't want to say importance but maybe maybe i'll say cultural stability yeah what is interesting is that if you speak about the kind of the art museum uh, as, let's say, like a collection and also a documentation of culture, right? Then that implies, yeah, accessibility again in a way. And I feel like often, be it with like the kind of uh, names you use, like calling something a cataloging space and a focus group, or maybe like using different media, diff also like moving through different worlds then, yeah, I keep coming back to this um, kind of feeling that often what you try to create is in a way like a disengagement that then allows the audience to kind of refocus or re-engage. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I mean, there's the, uh, the Copernican turn that like Kant talks about, right? Where like you suddenly realize that actually the earth is not the center of the universe and it's actually the sun and that you the earth are rotating around the sun i always try to go for these paradynamic shifts by participating in the system itself um and i guess you can call it kind of a hijacking but it's also kind of a divestment right where it's 
I mean, uh, so many of my performances is, again, me, like, playing the music, and I'm just, like, disengaged from the fact that, like, you want to hear dance music with a kick drum. You're not going to hear a kick drum today. You're going to see me, like, jam. And that is valid. That's a valid thing. That Like, like I don't know. It's, um... Yeah, it's trying to just shift paradigms through a shared vernacular, like An- Anderson kind of talks about. It's, um... Yeah, because, I mean... I could write about American economy and, like, extractive capitalism without mentioning music, but I think not as many people... Well, it's the accessibility thing, right? If you attach accelerationism and, like, yeah, I don't know, gender studies or whatever into to something like music, it just propagates with, like, a clear art, like artifact, like an example. Um... Whereas, like, if I were to, say, get a PhD in, like, social sciences, I would kind of get locked up there. And I've been having that crisis with writing this book, actually, where I've had to accept that most of the people that even hear about the book won't read it. Even if they own it, they won't actually read it. And so it's like, I've been trying to figure out ways of writing the book in such a way that you can just go in and grab bits of information and, like... But also there is a continuity. Um... Because, yeah, accessibility is so important, but also accessibility is based on, like, a false sense of, like, scarcity. Because, like, there is no such thing as, like... Yeah, there's no such thing as scarcity. There is no limit to human experiences. There is no limit to producing sounds. I mean, I even think about someone like uh, Frederick Jameson, who talks about kitsch culture, and it's like, I don't believe in kitsch. I don't believe in, like, corniness. I don't believe in any of these things that puts a cap on human experiences to the point at which I mean and and that's what the music industry has done right it's made everything limitless under this false pretense of like accessibility but what they've actually done is thinned out the um, the potency of a product and they're selling the idea of it which is a scam 